You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Welcome to Thrive. It's good to have you here today. We are in a series called Resolve. And that's a question, actually, rather than just a statement, is do we really want to resolve the conflicts and the problems we have? I know that seems like an obvious question. Of course we do, but I look at our society, I look at our world, and I'm not so sure that we want to resolve anything or we just like to fight. Uh, That's part of human nature. That's where we're at. Um, And what we're really trying to do in this series is answer the question in the affirmative that we do want to resolve. And why? Not because it's just good for us. It's because our God has brought resolution. Our God is the one who sought us out, who reconciled us to him when he didn't have to. He forgives. He has resolved. And he will bring resolution to all the issues that were on that screen. Tribalism, racism, you name it. I don't care what it is. What we are saying, something so countercultural, is that God, through Christ, has reconciled the world, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whether they want to or not, that's the way it's going. And that's what's going to happen is everything in heaven and on earth will be united in him, and we will be able to spend eternity in that complete state of resolution and celebration. Isn't that great? That's the hope we have, even in very turbulent times, especially in turbulent times. Now, over the last few weeks since the beginning of January, we've covered how we can get into what uh, Amanda Ripley calls in her book, the tar pits of conflict. That is, we're kind of stuck in it, and it just doesn't seem to resolve, and anything we do gets even worse. So we talked about that, how to recognize it at least, and hopefully how to get out of it. We've talked about how we have met the enemy, as Pogo once stated, right? And the enemy is right here, right? And that I am my greatest obstacle in life. I am my greatest obstacle. It's easy to find fault in others. And we talked as well about the difference between being last week between judgmental and having to make judgments, decisions, okay? Today, we're probably getting even more practical and maybe more down to earth. I think we all struggle with this. I know I do. And we're going to be talking about what happens after we finally realize we've got a conflict with somebody, we have thought through things, I have recognized that I am part of the problem, at least, if not the problem, and I need to... uh, connect with that person again. How do I do that? And two words that are going to be very important as we look through Matthew 18 today are these two words, compassionately engage. We're going to focus on those two words and keeping those two together. Now, if you've been in the church for a long time, you probably know what this passage is about. And if you haven't, that's okay. But a lot of people say, we're following. In our church, we follow Matthew 18 to the letter. Okay. Well, let's see if that's true. So we're going to read a section of it, but I'm really going to be using the whole context of the chapter because what happens before certain verses and what happens after and how it all ties together really matters and how you 
work this, quote, section of Matthew 18. But we'll read verses 12 to 20 to start. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And you think the answer is, of course, but do you realize how crazy that is? Most people say, eh, we get a little loss in our company. What's 1% loss? You know, that'd be great if that's all it was. Not this shepherd. And he finds it. And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, and that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now I said context is really important for these words because I've heard too many times, and probably Pastor Carl has heard people say, well, I've used Matthew 18 with that person. I went through the steps. I went to him. I told him what was wrong. He did not repent. (laughs) So I took somebody else with me, and we told him, and he did not repent. So I cut him off. Is that what you would do to your children? Just think of it. I think I would have lasted maybe a week during my teenage years in the house, you know? Well, I came to my kid. I told him how messy his room is, and he did not obey my voice. He did not. He just told me off instead of actually cleaning up the room, so I brought my spouse. We told him. He didn't. He's out of the house, disowned forever. Do you understand how formulaic it can become when you just look at this verse as a step-by-step process to walk through, and then you got it all done, and they're out it, it, it reminds me, I know this is kind of a little beside the point, but I just was thinking about this this morning. I had a group. Uh, it's easy to see from the outside sometimes when these things happen. So out in California, the church I had, we gained about 100 members from the Lahu Sea tribe of Southeast Asia. They were mainly refugees from Thailand after the Vietnam War. It's a long story how they got to the United States. And 3,000 of Lahusi settled in Visalia, California, the only place in the country with any sizable population of them. And we got about 100 members in the church. And I went over with a couple to Thailand to a couple villages to see what we could do. And what I found out in their culture, when there was a disagreement between families, You didn't resolve it. You just left. And so what happened is the average size of a Lahusi village was about 100. That's it. Because any time it got larger than that, the group had a disagreement between two parts of the family. And then one group just left and went to another mountaintop and started a new village. And they kept doing that. 
and doing that and doing that. And I found out in Visalia, California, this group could not be unified in any form, and there were probably 10 churches with 50 to 100 members of La Husi because they got upset, they went over there. They got upset, they went over there. They got upset, they went. And we go like, ah, you never learned how in your culture how to say I'm sorry or reconcile? Nope. Well, I have a feeling that's going on now, nationally. And we're all forming our little tribes. What's missing is that first word of the two that we're looking at, compassionately engaging. You know, Peter, in this text, right after Jesus says, this is the process, if your brother sins against you, he turns to Jesus and says, so how many times am I to forgive someone their sins? And he thinks he's being overly generous with seven. Because I think the rabbis in that day said three. So he doubled it and added one for a bonus. Seven. And Jesus turns and says, 70 times seven or 77 times. We're not sure what the Greek actually, it's either 77 times or 70 times seven. But the point is, it doesn't matter the number. It's not about the number. There's no math involved with grace. We'll get to that a little more. So he's basically saying, stop counting. You know, it's not like, okay, so Kyle, I'm, I think, on number 423 with you. <laughs> We're getting close to the biblical limit, right? <laughs> That's not the way it works. It's so often we keep score and God is not. I better say that again. We keep score. God does not. God does not. If he did, do you understand? And so when Jesus responds to Peter and telling him 70 times 7, kind of blowing him out of the water, blowing away all categories, he then tells another parable that blows away all categories and all ability for us to ever count or balance the scales in our lives. So Jesus says, <clears throat> there's a servant who we would call the biggest loser ever in all of history in this parable. A servant who must have had some power and authority who comes to his king and has lost, it says in the text, 10,000 talents. Well, if you would make the talent of gold equaling basically, um, I think it's 10,000 days work. If you multiply this up, as Jesus is saying, we're talking a trillion dollars. Anybody remember? Um, okay. What did he do? A million dollars in that show, right? And he thinks it's a big number. I think a trillion is still a big number today. Because we do not have one trillionaire in this world. We may have two or three companies that are worth a trillion, but we don't have even an... We have people that are worth a lot, but no one who's worth a trillion. And how in the world does this servant lose a trillion dollars? I don't know. Right? But what the king does in this parable talks about this first word, compassion, greatly. 
Our first point is compassionately you engage. And that's what this king does, who is owed a trillion dollars by this individual, who ridiculously comes before the king and says, I'm going to pay it back. <laughs> How do you pay back a trillion dollars? Do I don't even know where to start. $10 a week won't do. Even a, th even a million dollars a week will not do. There's just no way to pay a trillion dollars back. And this is what the servant's master does. We're going to go through these three points. I'm spending a lot of time on compassionately today because I think this is the most important point. Okay. Matthew 18, 27. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. And this is where we get the word compassion, by the way. When it says took pity, it's the Greek word splanknizomai. And I've used this word before because it's so important in the New Testament. Splanknizomai means your guts just ache. It's really for your heart, your kidneys, your liver. Um, it's, have you ever had that gut ache when you see a situation and just go, oh, I can't believe what they're going through? And what this really means is the king, when he takes pity on this servant, somehow this king decides to identify with the servant's plight. The king, does, how in the world? He doesn't say that. He doesn't lecture him. He doesn't go into, this king takes pity and says, oh, I see, I get it. I'm feeling what you're feeling right now. You are scared out of your wits. You are pleading your case before me. You're making a ridiculous claim, but I would try to make that too of how to pay it back. And he, his heart goes out to him. Isn't that amazing? God, do you see, represented by this king, Jesus is saying, is always looking at compassion with you. He does not separate himself from you and go like, I'd never do that. How in the world? Are you kidding? He's not neutral. This is a thing that I think so often people think that God is some like Judge Judy, who I don't think is that neutral often, but um, a judge who more or less just looks at all the facts, try to balance it all out, figure it out, and make some neutral, non-third-party uh, judgment. God is not neutral. He is for you. Even the worst of us. Even when you owe a trillion, when it blows away all cash, and what does he do? He has compassion. He identifies with you. You know, that word, splongnizomai, comes up actually four other times in the Gospel of Matthew, specifically. And each time it's about Jesus. Each time it's about Jesus and how he relates to the crowds. He sees the crowds and has compassion on them because they're lost like sheep without a shepherd. He sees an individual who has, I believe, a leprous hand, and he has compassion on him, and he heals him. He sees the crowd, and they're hungry, and he feeds them, and he has compassion on them. Again and again, this is Jesus' heart. And what, if you want to know a rule of thumb is if you see it in Jesus, you know that's what the Father is. Because whatever the, Jesus does, the Father does. And whatever the Father does, Jesus does. So you want to know who and what God is like? He's like Jesus, right? Completely, 
He has compassion on you. But I'll tell you, it's so opposite, isn't it? What we do when someone offends us, when someone like hurts us, when someone um, does something to us, our first response is not to have take pity on them. My first response is, I'd never do that. I can't believe you did that. On a national level, like I said, we're doing that here and there, and we're putting people into categories, right, left, and center. And what's fascinating about the, the word category, by the way, I didn't put this up, but it's another Greek word. Everything's Greek. Um, it's kataoria in Greek, kata against goria, to argue. It's basically the way that you cut people off, put them over there so that you can castigate them and eliminate them and treat them negatively. The whole purpose is to other them when you make a category. Someone who experienced this himself as a child, got to the United States, became a theologian, and I think he is still at Yale, has written books about it. He experienced this, Miroslav Volf, by being a child in Yugoslavia as it all fell apart and was balkanized. And the Serbs against the Croats and the genocide that happened it wasn't simply about um, a few things. This is what he writes in his amazingly good book called Exclusion and Embrace. He writes, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion. Now, we could go on, and the book is just amazing. But as a follower of Jesus, Jesus did not exclude himself from the company of sinners. He identified with us completely to the point of death on the cross. And he definitely doesn't exclude you from the company of humans involved in that. That's why Paul says... I have been crucified with Christ. He doesn't say, um, I did this. No, he says that Jesus took me and put me to death and raised me to new life through his death and resurrection. I am so identified with him because he chose to identify himself with me. What a difference that makes. So the king first has compassion. And then... That sentence says, that one Greek sentence says, he canceled the debt. He canceled the debt. Um, and I think this is where we have to understand what forgiveness is and is not. You know, too often I think I hear um, how people respond, oh, thank you so much, or I am so sorry about that. And what is the first peop th thing people say? I'm sorry I did that, or I'm sorry for that. Their response is often, no problem. Do you ever get that? Um, there was a problem. There's a problem. Forgiveness doesn't say, oh, there's no problem. It doesn't blow it off. It doesn't dismiss it. No, what forgiveness says is, 
The problem is so great that the only thing that's going to work is not some balancing of the scales. The problem is so great that there's nothing that you can do to really repay this back. It's like a trillion dollars. The problem is so great, a whole different calculus has to come in. Actually, no math at all, in a sense. Aren't you glad, Katrina, no math? It just blows math out of the water. It's not some form There's no formula to follow. Grace and grace and more grace. So, yeah, there is a little debate about the size of the debt, whether the, the talent is a talent of silver or a talent of gold. But in the end, it's either going to be like, you know, $5 billion or a trillion. Does it matter in one sense? Jesus is saying, you can't pay this debt, but God has chosen, the king chooses to cancel it all together. Absolutely. Just imagine for a moment that you go to somebody's house and accidentally break one of their precious heirlooms. Anybody ever have that happen? I hope not, but it could happen, couldn't it? And you just, oh my goodness, I am so sorry. Yeah, that was my great-grandmother's whatever. And is there any way I can, um, I, I'll, I'll get it repaired. Oh, no. And the host says, no, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. There's a cost to pay. Do you realize there's a cost to pay? Somebody's going to pay something here. But what they're doing is freeing you from paying it. That doesn't mean they're not paying it. They'll pay it one way or the other. If they repay it by getting it repaired, they pay it by getting it replaced, or they just pay it by not having it any longer to enjoy. But there's a cost to forgiveness. And um, even if someone doesn't break an object like this, if it's instead they break your name, like your reputation, if they trash you in some way, does that ever happen? Oh, come on. Yeah, <laughs> quite a bit. Um, I get to listen to, in our family, my son is dealing with that at work all the time, how people treat each other. And I get around college students. I hear this too, right? And it's not just college students. And it's not just the employees. It's just members of your own household, <laughs> right? So uh, when that happens, somebody's going to pay. The question is who, right? The question is who. Um, so you can make them pay by gossiping about it. Can you believe so-and-so and what they said about me? They're so blah, 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 blah. You can also make them pay by distancing yourself from them and standing aloof and trying to punish them with your, you know, your attitude towards them. You can also make them pay by just like, oh, I don't know cutting off the relationship altogether. But you're trying to make them pay. Or you can pay it. And you pay it when you have an opportunity to say something mean about them, maybe true, but still mean, and you decide not to. 
You call it back. Instead, you say some kind words about them. You sympathize with them. You understand them. You put the best construction on what they are doing and saying. You pay it every time that you would like to go in front of them and just slice and dice them up by your anger. And instead, you bring words of healing. You pay it by basically, um, instead of fantasizing about how you're going to fantasizing about how they, they might get their comeuppance. You let go of all those things and you pray for them. And what happens over time is that that bitterness and that anger goes away. But the decision was made up front that I'm going to pay for this, not them. You see, here's the reality. Forgiveness is something you do before you feel. Got it? Forgiveness is something you do before you feel it. The feelings will come later, after you've made the decision to forgive. And Jesus did it all. He paid it all. He forgave it all. What's amazing about the crucifixion scene when you look at it in the four Gospels is the fact that here Jesus You know why he ended up on the cross? Because he was one who was a forgiver of sinners and ate with those tax collectors and others. He ended up on the cross because he was, in their sense, a rule breaker. But the rules were all the calculus, all the mathematics, all the system of uh, reciprocity that the whole religious establishment had put together, and he, quote, broke those rules because he was ushering in the kingdom of God. And so he's on the cross because he was compassionate and forgiving and willing to heal and started a whole new way of being. And it is his death on the cross that actually establishes that whole way of being and his resurrection that guarantees That's a life we can all live. So he cancels the debt. And then thirdly, the text says he let him go. He releases him. The king frees him. You see, forgiveness is not a parole. You know parole, right? Parole is, okay, we'll let you out of jail, but you better now. Boom, 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 boom. I think a lot of, sadly, a lot of Christians think forgiveness is like parole. Okay, so long as now I stay on the narrow line, but once if I mess up, I'm back in jail, not with God. Peacemaker Ministries, by the way, A great book, if you want to read um, a more of a summary of some of this, it's called uh, Reconciling Everyday Relationships. And in it, this is what they say, forgiveness is not a sentimental concept, a feeling. It's what we've just said. It's a doing first. It's not just forgetting. It's not excusing. And it's not a temporary pardon. Okay? What forgiveness is, is a promise I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. And every one of those things is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. 
it says, as far as the east is from the west, he has removed your sins from it. He has forgotten them. You try to bring up those things, and he'll go like, what, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? I think it was uh, Corey Ten Boom who said, you know, uh, the Bible says God has cast our sins into the depths and the heart of the sea. Now, this is what she adds. And he's posted a sign on top saying, no fishing. <laughs> Don't keep trying to drag up what God has already forgiven you. Isn't that great? Now, you might be saying, wait, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait a minute. There are some things in life that that person did. If they keep doing those things, that's going to be dangerous not only for them but for other people around them. Don't we need to seek some justice? And I would say absolutely correct. You need to seek justice in that. But if you don't forgive up front, you aren't going to be seeking justice. You're just going to be seeking vengeance. In order to be a truly just person to seek what's appropriate in a situation, you got to take that energy out of it by forgiving the person first, even before they might be repentant, and then seeking what's just and appropriate. And the whole point with this parable, with this whole chapter, is what we read at the beginning, that the Father wants everyone to be saved. He'll seek and save just the one. He'll go after. And in that parable of the lost sheep and the 99 back, which doesn't make a lot of sense to us, it doesn't say, um, yeah, the shepherd's going to seek for an hour or two, but limit his time. And once that's up, he's done with it. Or, you know, he'll only go three or four miles through the wilderness to find that sheep. No. Until he does until he does. I think that's why maybe the letter of James puts it this way. The wisdom from above, so different from this world, it's pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So that's compassion. And I would say compassion will not end with just feeling compassion for somebody in a situation, but compassionately engage. You will engage with somebody. And I think this, too, is a sacrifice. It's much easier to, to not bring it up at all, you know, just blow it off then. Oh, yeah, I'm not holding any. I don't feel anything. I'm not upset about this. I'm good with it. But your goal is to also free them. Your goal is to make sure that they understand there's nothing between you that's getting in the way. Your goal is to make sure that they have received forgiveness and they know what that is to live under that grace like you're living under it. So when you engage another person or meet with them, by the very act that you've decided to meet with them, you are telling them that they are so important to you that you want to make sure that they understand there's nothing between the two of you that's getting in the way. That's why Peacemaker says it this way. When you are engaging someone, you are helping someone solve a problem, and you're identifying and lifting a burden. That's the way to look at it, not as I'm pointing out an issue. I'm trying to make myself feel better by downing. No. Compassionately engaged means, hey, I see this. I have a feeling this is a burden for you right now, and you're feeling a little iffy about this. Let's get together 
and clear the air to make sure that we're all good because I want a relationship with you stronger than ever. You know what's amazing in this story is this king in this parable, he so identified with this servant, he didn't just hear his words, he understood the plight behind it. You know, because he could have just heard his words and eviscerated him for his illogic. How in the world? You'll never be able to pay this back. Are you kidding me? But instead, he heard what was really going on. And he engaged with him, and he forgave him. He listened that deeply. And that's what we're called to do as well, to care enough to engage. And yes, now, um, I don't think this is any different than Paul's attitude in life, by the way. Paul probably understood this parable extremely well when he heard it because he felt that's what his life was. He owed God a trillion dollars or even more. And not just once. This is what's amazing, though, about Paul's attitude. It wasn't just the fact that he said, yeah, I used to be, I murdered. I actually persecuted the way. And then I met Jesus, and he didn't kill me on the spot. He didn't um, lecture me. He just, he, he blinded me temporarily, I thought, but he healed me, and then he still called me. Toward the end of his life, Paul um, writes to Timothy, whom Paul never had children, but Timothy was kind of um, his mentor or mentee. He, was, he treated him as his son. And he writes this letter to Timothy and shares one of the most intimate things about himself. He writes this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He didn't say, I used to be the foremost. Aren't you fascinated by that? He didn't say, I was, or I could have been. He said, I am. And this is after decades of serving as a missionary, sacrificing, giving of himself, sleepless nights, crying with people, caring for people, sharing the gospel, being unjustly jailed and beaten and all these things. And he still sees himself as the chief of sinners. Present tense. You see, in my circumstances, with all the privileges and opportunities I've had in life, <laughs> I've messed it up as much as possible at the same time. I can call myself chief of sinners in my position. And anyone else that I see and look at and go like, oh my goodness, how terrible, I didn't live their life, right? And, and if I did, would I have done anything differently than they did? Or be where, do you understand? In other words, I, I think we all need to say, yep, that's me, I'm chief of sinners for my life. I've messed it up, and I still am. And from that position, I am engaging with others. Realize the incredible debt, but realize even more the amazing grace. 
so deep, so broad, so high, it's, um, it's actually exceeding abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. It blows away all mathematics. It blows away all formulas. It blows away all um, rationality. But it totally makes sense. And that's why when I realize that, as I realize the infant compassion that God has had on me through Jesus Christ and continues to have for me, um, I'm empowered then to be a little more compassionate to others and engage them. So I, Brant Hansen said it this way, rules don't change anyone in hearts ever. They don't change anybody ever, but grace does. Grace does. And that's, I think, the real key to this whole chapter. Well, the Christian life. You don't need a bunch of advice. You need the good news. Right? And that's how Paul writes it as well in Ephesians. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you this day. Lord, a trillion, incomprehensible, uncategorical, and yet your forgiveness is even more. (laughs) Your love is even deeper. You have done more than I could ever imagine, and I thank you, Lord, for that, for each one of us. Teach us, Lord, how to compassionately engage, to identify with the other, to forgive and to free as we, O Lord, have been forgiven and freed by you. Lord, today we lift up a number of people that we know in our church. We thank you, Lord, for um, Linda and Haley's mother and the celebration they had yesterday at her memorial to celebrate the resurrection that you are, Lord Jesus, and the life continue healing for her and the whole family, Lord, at this time. Uh, We lift up to you, um, Bob and Joan Beverly, as Bob has pneumonia in North Carolina and Beverly is undergoing an ablation surgery on Tuesday. We pray your healing and your guidance through all those things. For Tom Hay, Lord, as he continues to try to figure out what's going on with the doctors and others, We pray your healing to be upon him and that you would strengthen him. We thank you, Lord, for the seven who are going on our mission trip uh, this spring break. We pray your blessing over them and keep guiding and, and directing these ways, Lord, according to your will. May your will be done and your kingdom come among them and through them to others in Guatemala. Lord God, I um, ask that you would, um, well, Lord, somehow that this message and what we need in our relationships, you know the conflicts that we have. You know how easy it is for us to get stuck in them, Lord. We need you to to be with us through it and work with us in such a way that um, your grace abounds. As we prepare, Lord, uh, for the Lord's Supper in a few moments, we know, just like this whole message was about, If we said we were, you know, not what Paul said, but we've gotten beyond our sin so that we're never, you know, uh, we'd just be deceiving ourselves. No, 
But if we confess our sins, Lord, you are faithful and just. You forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for that. So prepare us, O Lord, to receive your grace once again as you give us, with bread and wine, your very self. And Lord, we ask that you would bless this mission and ministry. We want to reach more people with the words of resolution and reconciliation. Your gospel, Lord, that is even needed in the, and maybe more especially within Christianity and in the church these days, Lord, and in our society as well, Lord. And may we be instruments of that peace that we bring your light and love and forgiveness and grace to others along with your truth about both the human condition and our relationships, Lord. All these things we lift up to you this day, confident that you are with us, guiding us according to your love and mercy, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.